So there's a word that's often heard, I would say, more than most parents would like in any home with young children. My kids all went through this phase, like not long after they learned to speak, one of the first things they all enjoyed saying was, mine, mine. That toy truck is mine. That cookie, mine. The blanket, mine. Even if I haven't played with that doll for over a year, if you come to my house and pick it up, you're going to hear nice and loud, that is mine, right? It can be a frustrating stage especially if you have more than one kid, because inevitably they all mind the same things. But scientists say that this, as challenging as it is for parents and caregivers, it's a sign of a developing mind in the child that hits what they call the possessive phase. So developmental psychologist Susan Gelman explains it this way. This phase suggests that she, the child, is grasping the abstract concept of a person's invisible tie to a thing. A child's sense of self is emerging. And as it does, the child starts to express themselves through their connection to the things around them. So when a child learns that something is theirs, that it belongs to them in a special way, then the object begins to take on extra importance. It becomes extra valuable to the young child. Studies bear this out. They show, uh, they've done studies with two and three-year-old children, and they'll show them a number of toys, and then they'll tell them one of the particular toys belongs to the child, and then they'll mix up all the toys, and they'll note, these researchers, how, how constant the child's identification with the toy they were told is theirs is. Mix up all the toys, which one do you want to play with? The kids inevitably go for the toy they've been told is theirs. Even when they substitute the toy for a block of wood amongst a group of cool toys, and they mix them all up, the two or three-year-old child will still say they want to be with the block of wood because it's theirs. I love most what's mine, right? Well, I start with this because this is the second conversation we're having in our beginning of the year teaching series, one I'm calling Habits for Health. And in this series, we're just considering together some practices, some habits that we might do well to consider or to reconsider um, as this new year and this new decade get underway. Lots of us take some time after the holidays to kind of bring order to our lives, and I thought maybe it would make sense to do that to our lives of faith as well. So I want to take a moment to think today about habits that touch on something that can feel very personal to a lot of us, just like it does to young children. Our stuff, our resources, our possessions, our money, okay? It's a topic we don't talk a lot about here, frankly. At least not in a prescriptive, like, telling you what you should or shouldn't do kind of way. Here at Haven, we talk a lot about trying to actively create a safe spiritual home for a diverse group of people oriented around Jesus, a home that recognizes that churches can and often have been, instead of safe, places of harm, even spiritual trauma for folks. And understanding that, we're trying to cultivate places of healing for those areas of trauma, and work as best we can not to create more pain. And one of the ways I think, sadly, 
people have experienced the toxic harm of communities of faith the most has been in the ways that churches have talked about money. All right, so a lot of us have been in places where we may have felt manipulated by faith communities who insisted in direct or indirect ways that faithfulness to God meant giving a significant portion of your income to this particular church. And if you're unable to do that or you don't feel led to do that, um, you were made to feel less welcome, less included in what God was doing there. And I'm sensitive to that. I know that that's some of our story, okay? And so it's something I work hard at Haven to be careful about, to be thoughtful about, okay? While I still, of course, want to invite people to generously participate in giving to the work we're doing here because I think it's a gift. I think it's a joy to do so. And a lot of you have. But I acknowledge the tensions. And even in those tensions, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? The reality is Jesus had a lot to say about resources. That is just true. You might argue that that was a core part of what he was here to do, to challenge what he saw as unjust and immoral ways that humans were allocating their resources, and instead to bring what he called good news to the poor. Sometimes this meant challenging the larger systems of power that were con concentrating wealth in the hands of too few and leaving too many people hungry, thirsty, unsheltered. But it also meant talking to individuals, families, communities, whatever their socioeconomic station, about the ways they interacted with material resources and how those interactions impacted their spiritual health. So the truth is, if I'm going to look to Jesus for direction on living a healthy, holistic life, I need to consider what Jesus would say about the things I consider mine. So we're going to look today at a passage in Luke 12, which is one of the main teaching passages, kind of a place where we get a lot of content from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And so in this chapter, Jesus is doing a lot of preaching. And the setup in Luke is that he's talking to a lot of people, okay? The chapter starts saying, when many thousands of the crowd had gathered, so they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak. That is like a very big setup for a preacher. I have like major props to Jesus because that sounds like a pretty unruly crowd to have to try to talk into and deliver some important content. But that is the context, okay? Big mob of people. Jesus is trying to preach to them. And partway down, 10 verses or so later, um, we get verse 13, which is where we're going to pick it up, okay? So you can read with me. We've got it on the screen. I have handouts. If you're new here, you're welcome to follow along with the handouts if they're helpful. You don't need to if you don't want to. There'll be some things you can take notes on and fill in the blanks uh, later if you like. All right, so picking up at verse 13. Then someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter between you two? Then he said to them, Watch out. And guard yourself from all types of greed because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he then told them a parable. The land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself, what should I do? 
for I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, celebrate. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded back from you. But who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich toward God. So here we have this parable. Okay? Jesus told these stories, stories with an intention, provocative stories, to try to provoke a response. And this one is told in regards to resources. And for some of us, that might, it might seem like a curious story because Jesus in it seems to be chastising someone for making what sounds, at least at first hearing, like a wise financial plan. Someone comes into resources, rather than like blowing it all on frivolous spending, they make preparations to save their income, to shore it up, and then live off of that wise investment for years to come. What is the problem? But the story makes clear, Jesus, God doesn't see the investor as wise at all. Quite the opposite. The man in Jesus' story is called a fool. What is it that makes him so foolish? To answer that question, I think we need to start going back to that setting, okay? Remember, Jesus is speaking to the unruly crowd of thousands, There's likely like a myriad of people trying to get his attention, shouting things his way. Like imagine a White House press conference kind of vibe, okay? I think that was what it was like. And in the middle of this chaotic scene, one of the voices in the crowd rings out and Jesus responds to it, okay? And it's it's not a particularly respectful ask, right? It's a pretty selfish demand. Rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, in ancient Israel, older brothers inherited control of an estate when the parents died. And and their portion was twice their younger brother's portions. And the ideal, actually, was that the siblings would work together and would manage the whole estate together. They didn't need to be broken apart. That was kind of the goal. That was the ideal. But if there's a rift in the family, if the brothers don't get along, um, they may split things apart. And if there's a dispute about who, how much should be split to, and given to whom, uh, the Torah makes a provision to go to a rabbi for a judgment. Okay, So this seems to be what this guy is hoping for. He must be a younger brother, otherwise he would have control over the estate. And it sounds like he's had a rift with, with his big bro, and he's uh, mad that older brother's not giving him what he thinks he should have. So here he is. He shouts it out at this famous rabbi who's in town. Never mind the thousands of people this guy is interrupting, ignoring, to get what he wants. Never mind he has probably no real relationship, from what we can tell, with Jesus. Right? We have no reason to think that he actually respects Jesus as a rabbi. They haven't built that kind of relationship. It's a transaction. Jesus is here. He can help him get it done. So he calls out to him. But Jesus refuses to give him what he's looking for, right? He's not going to make this ruling on his behalf. Instead, he just calls him out on his expectation that this man is entitled to Jesus participating in his self-interested scheme. Who made me a judge? 
arbiter between you two. No, not my job. Okay, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He could just let it go, right? Move on to the next one. But instead, he uses this personal situation that this man brought up, interrupting the crowd on this man's behalf. He uses it to then make a broader point to everybody who's there. Okay, watch out. Guard yourself from all types of greed because one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. And this is where I think Jesus reveals the first important lesson he wants his listeners to understand about resources and how they should think about them. And that's this, that how we handle our resources reflects what we believe life is ultimately about. How we handle our resources reflects what we believe life is ultimately about. Okay, the parable makes it more clear. Jesus introduces us to a rich man. Now remember, in this day, wealth inequality was stark, more than what we experience here. Only 2 or 3% of the population were landowners, were rich in that time. Okay, they were the people of means. And the rest of the population, like 97%, was quite poor. The day laborers, the subsistence farmers, the peasants. So already, this person Jesus is talking about is clearly in an elite class, probably way above where most of the people he's talking to live. Okay, But Jesus tells us this, this already rich landowner has a huge windfall. His land yields a particularly abundant harvest, so big that, I mean, he has barns, right? They have literally been built for this kind of thing, that when you get extra grain, you have a place to put it. But the barns aren't big enough, all right? This is so much extra grain that there's no place to put it. This is a problem. What to do with all this extra grain? It is the ultimate first world problem, okay? To solve the problem, the guy doesn't go consult with his wife. He doesn't go talk with his foreman. He doesn't talk with his other workers. He doesn't consult with his kids or other landowners or his rabbi. He consults with himself. And he has this little soliloquy, right? He recites, he reveals what he's ultimately concerned with in this little soliloquy. It's a speech of about 60 words. And a fifth of them are I or myself. Okay? Everything is centered around his own self-interest, his own well-being, his own agency. And that's why the solution he comes up with, if that's the consideration, it makes perfect sense. I mean, my storehouse isn't big enough for all my wealth, then I guess I should just have my workers tear it down and build a bigger one. Why not? I've been successful. I deserve to have it all. Spend the rest of my life enjoying it because that's what life is about, right? How we handle our resources reflects what we believe life is ultimately about. And that brings me to the second lesson I think our story is trying to teach. That what we center our lives around matters. What we center our lives around matters. It's not neutral. It's not simply, well, to each their own, you know, if you want to be a selfish jerk and you can afford to do it, well, good on you. I'm going to be, you know, nice to people, but go for it. That's fine if that's what you want your life to be about. 
No, Jesus speaks of the divine saying, God calls this man a fool. God's not neutral on this choice he has made. The guy isn't foolish because he's rich. That's not why he's a fool. He's not even foolish because he saved the money. What makes him foolish is the fact that he is building his life solely around his money, around what he perceives to be mine. He's centering his life on his own security, his own financial stability, his own self-interest. And God calls a life oriented around these materialistic concerns to be foolishness. Clearly, Jesus believes that what you put at the center of your life matters. Now, there's a wordplay here that our reading of this in English misses a bit. But it's worth highlighting because I think it speaks to what's really at the heart of what Jesus is naming here. So um, it shows up in first in verse 19. And the word we're looking at in Greek is suke. Okay, suke. And it means soul, breath of life, that inner essence, that core of somebody. This is the origin of our word psyche, psychiatry, psychology, okay, suke. And where we see it is actually, and we missed it in the English translation, when he's talking to himself, he's like, someday in the future I'm going to be able to say, just chill, it's all good. The literal thing he says is, soul, you have plenty of goods. He speaks to his soul. I'm going to be able to say, soul, you can relax. Okay? I'm telling the core of my living self to be at ease because I have so much wealth. And right then, God comes to him and calls him out using the same word. Fool, tonight your suke, your soul will be taken from you. In our translation, it's life. But that's the word, suke. Your soul, that thing, that core of who you are, it's going away. And all that your soul is invested in, all that your suke has been fed by, has been living toward everything your soul values. You can't take it. It's all going to be gone. There's a metaphor that many of us who've been around Haven a while have found helpful to describe the life of faith. And it's called centered set theory. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but I think there's some piece that's useful for this. In this theory, we posit that perhaps the goal of the life of faith is to orient our lives in a particular direction, in the direction of God or the direction of Jesus. It's not, it's not to follow a set of rules. That's not the goal of the life of faith. It's not to pick the right group, to pick the right religious club what we might call a bounded set. No, it's to navigate a journey in which if your life was one of these dots, imagine all of our lives are like dots on this page and they're all in motion. You see some of the little arrows? If if we could see it a little better, you might be able to see some faint lines that are supposed to kind of look like these things are moving. If they're all moving and there's a center dot, there are certain things we center around. And then the question becomes at any given point, Are you moving toward or away from that centering point? What trajectory is your dot going on, right? 
And we talk about, with this metaphor, perhaps this is the goal of the life of faith, to orient our dots somewhere to go towards the divine. And maybe that's even the goal of spiritual community, what we're doing here, to help folks from whatever direction they're coming, whatever their story is, not to join a club, not to learn a whole bunch of rules, but simply to help folks turn their arrow toward that center point of God, to give into that gravitational pull, to do the work every day of recalibrating, reorienting. In religious terms, we have the word repenting. Really, that word means turning, to really just do that trajectory shift so as to direct oneself ultimately towards that divine center. Now, this metaphor seems to me to be exactly the underlying idea Jesus is pointing to in this story. The problem with the rich landowner in the parable is that the landowner has put his resources at the center of what he's orienting his life around. He's put that as the center dot. But in doing so, he's neglected to live into something with deeper, lasting value. Jesus ends his story by making the point explicit. So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich towards God. If you are invested, if all you're invested in is riches, if all you do is hoard and scrimp and grasp with that child's insistence of mine, everything that comes in the end, you have nothing. Now, tomorrow's a national holiday. One, I hope all of us will find meaningful ways to observe and participate in which we as a nation are meant to recognize the work and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Dr. King preached a sermon on this very passage. Over 50 years later, I would say his analysis still rings true for how this passage might speak to us today. Here's how he spoke about the folly of this rich landowner and what it means for us. I'm going to read it at length because it's, I find, really helpful. A victim of the cancerous disease of egotism, he failed to realize that wealth always comes as a result of the commonwealth. He talked as though he could plow the fields and build the barns alone. He failed to realize that he was an heir of a vast treasury of ideas and labor to which both the living and the dead had contributed. When an individual or a nation overlooks this interdependence, we find a tragic foolishness. We can clearly see the meaning of this parable for the present world crisis. Our nation's productive machinery constantly brings forth such an abundance of food that we must build larger barns and spend more than a million dollars daily to store our surplus. Year after year, we ask, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? I have seen an answer in the faces of millions of poverty-stricken men and women in Asia, Africa, and South America. I have seen an answer in the appalling poverty on the Mississippi Delta and the tragic insecurity of the unemployed in large industrial cities of the North. What can we do? The answer is simple. Feed the poor, clothe the naked, and heal the sick. 
Where can we store our goods? Again, the answer is simple. We can store our surplus food free of charge in the shriveled stomachs of the millions of God's children who go to bed hungry at night. In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. You see, there is an alternative to living toward your own security as the center point. There is an alternative to what Dr. King described as the cancerous disease of egotism. The alternative is finding another center point to live towards. That doesn't mean renouncing resources altogether, living a destitute life. All of us need resources to live. Jesus himself, all of his followers, they all needed resources to live. What I think Jesus is trying to teach the younger brother he's speaking to and everyone who's listening was to recognize the role resources have to play in this centering journey of life. They are the means to an end. They are not the end themselves. They are the means to an end, not the end themselves. Our resources can be powerful tools to navigate what Jesus calls a life that is rich in God, a life that's centered on the things of the divine. We're not three-year-olds anymore. We don't need to define ourselves by the things we possess. We are meant to use whatever earthly resources we have. Yes, our money, also our time, our energy, our gifts, our intelligence, our voices, our bodies, all of these are resources we have to deploy, to navigate ourselves towards the things of God, the love of neighbor, the care for the community, the stewardship of the created earth. We can take our windfalls, however big or small they may be, and we can feed the poor. We can clothe the naked. We can heal the sick. We can store our abundance in the stomachs of hungry children. And when we do so, Jesus teaches we will become enriched in things that endure, that live on, that can't be taken away even, even from death. Now, as I was preparing this teaching this week, I was struck by the resonance it has with a drama that's been playing out here in the East Bay in recent weeks. On November 18th, 2019, Three mothers and their children moved into a vacant three-bedroom home on Magnolia Street in Oakland. They cleaned things up, they washed the walls, they installed a water heater, they paid the gas and electric bills. And they did this all knowing they had no legal right to occupy the home. They didn't have a lease, they didn't have a deed. But they were there because they needed shelter for themselves and their children and they were there to draw attention to a crisis in our East Bay community. I'm guessing many of you have heard of these women by now. They're the founding members of a group called Moms for Housing. 
Moms for Housing describes itself on its website this way. Moms for Housing is a collective of homeless and marginally housed mothers. Before we found each other, we felt alone in this struggle. But there are thousands of others like us here in Oakland and all across the Bay Area. We are coming together with the ultimate goal of reclaiming housing for the community from speculators and profiteers. We are mothers, we are workers, we are human beings, and we deserve housing. Our children deserve housing. Housing is a human right. You see, the house they chose to occupy was not random, and it wasn't simply vacant because its new owners had not yet moved in, or it was between tenants. This home had been purchased by a Southern California-based company called Wedgwood. Wedgwood owns thousands of homes across the country, including hundreds today in the Bay Area. And many of these homes are purchased as speculative investments. They're foreclosed properties, often purchased on the cheap. Often these homes are occupied with low-income tenants. And companies like Wedgwood are happy to come in, evict the tenants, clean up the house, and flip it for a huge profit. This often means evicting low-income people of color who've been in a community for decades and selling to very high-income, often white, newcomers. Sometimes these companies actually determine that the most profitable thing for them to do is to keep the homes vacant, making homes in the area more scarce and driving up the prices for those that they do put on the market. Supply and demand, right? You see, what these women are trying to draw people's attention to is that the housing crisis in the Bay Area with our skyrocketing rents and house prices isn't simply about the influx of a lot of new workers to the area. It's not simply about new money from tech. Those are huge contributing factors, but they are not alone. This is also a crisis fueled by developers and corporations willing to decimate communities simply to maximize their bottom lines, and local governments who are unable or unwilling to stop them. By some estimates, there are currently four vacant homes for every homeless individual in Oakland. Four homes a person that doesn't have home. And those numbers are pretty much the same. It's like two to four in all of our cities in the Bay Area. That's ludicrous, right? 50 years ago, Dr. King asked, where should we store our excess food? And said the answer was simple, in the bellies of hungry children. In the same way today, Moms for Housing provokes us to ask, what shall we do with all these empty homes? The answer should also be simple. Create homes for the homeless. These housing activists took over a home not to live rent-free. They did it to sound an alarm. They were willing to risk arrest as an act of nonviolent resistance that says the status quo is unjust. It cannot be tolerated anymore. For their part, Wedgwood was given the opportunity to participate in something besides corporate enrichment. They were given the opportunity to play a role in an effort centered on something besides greed, to turn their arrow in just one little way. 
with the help of an organization called Oakland Community Land Trust, Moms for Housing was prepared to buy the house, to pay the developer the same market rate that the developer had bought it for just a couple months before. The value of this house is 1% of the company's holdings in the Bay Area alone. They could have simply just sold it to the women, not even for a loss, put the whole thing to rest, maybe even earn some goodwill in the neighborhood. Instead, this week, the women were forcibly removed from the home on Magnolia Street. We have a, you can put it forward a couple more pictures. These are the women. These are the crowds that showed up to protect them. And because of these crowds, they waited until five in the morning the next day. And police in riot gear, equipped with an armored vehicle, showed up at five in the morning so as to get around these supporters who put up a human wall. They got around them, they arrested the moms that were present, some of their supporters, they boarded up the home, threw the children's toys on the sidewalk. But Dominique Walker, one of the moms and a spokeswoman for the cause, she still calls the effort a victory. Why? People like us are talking about it. I think that is a part of it. That's a big part of it. We're having conversations about what just housing in a gentrifying community should look like. Hundreds of people who may not have ever considered themselves housing advocates, they rallied to their side. City council members in Oakland wrote letters to Wedgwood to try to persuade them to sell the women the property. Whether you agree with the methods of Moms for Housing or not, it must be acknowledged that as a result of their direct action, a community is being asked to organize around something besides corporate profits. We're being asked to organize around questions of how growth should happen, what community should really look like, when do our laws favor corporate interests over the rights of humans to be sheltered. We are being asked to consider how, as Dr. King said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. How we handle our resources reflects what we believe life is ultimately about. What we center our lives around matters. And we can choose to live towards the way of Jesus rather than our own security. Amen? We can choose to live towards the way of Jesus rather than our own security. That is a choice we have to make every day. So if all these statements are true, what does that mean for how we should be ordering our resources? What are the habits of health? we ought to cultivate. I'm just going to end now with a few suggestions that I want to invite you to consider in the days and weeks to come. First, I'm going to say let's consider our centered set journeys. Consider your centered set journey. What would you put as that big red dot that you're trying to live your life towards? What is the center point you're trying to live towards? And I would ask you to say, go beyond a surface answer. Family, career, God. 
Go deeper. What does living unto the center of the divine mean in terms of what you value? What you hope for? What goals you have? What ways you're trying to grow? What is it you're really trying to live toward? What's the goal of this life? What would you describe life as ultimately about? I'm just going to take a moment and let us sit in that question for a bit. The second thing I'm going to invite you to do is going to take probably a little more time than we could do right here. Okay? But it's something to start reflecting on. To take an inventory on how you are allocating your resources now. Take an inventory. Maybe you go home. You pull up your bank statement. And you think about where it's all going. What it's all going towards. Right? How are you allocating your resources now? And let's go beyond financial. How are we allocating our time? How are we allocating our talents? Our gifts, our, the unique contributions we can make to the world in which direction are they being spent right do an inventory and ask yourself does this match up with the centered set journey I'm trying to take or are there places where my resource allocation might be actually pulling me in a different direction what would that mean and the final thing I'm going to ask us to is to commit, or if you're already doing this, to recommit to an intentional practice that allows you to regularly invest in what you want to value. Commit to an intentional practice that allows you to regularly invest in what you want to value. This to me, this is the value of giving to a faith community or to a, an important nonprofit organization or to regularly volunteering to regular service, to doing like we did last night at the, at the Berkeley Food and Housing Project shelter. This is why we show up. This is why we join in advocacy efforts. We call our city council members to demand fair housing policies. These are practices to invest in something we care about. These are down payments. These are actual moments of saying, this is what I care about, not just in my mind, but with the way I'm allocating my life, right? This is why Jason and I have always tried to give a good portion of our income away, even when we didn't have a lot to work with. We don't do it because it's going to give us brownie points in heaven. We don't do it to put us in good favor with a pastor or make us like the holy people. We do it because it regularly reminds us what we're living towards. It's an opportunity every month to turn that arrow in a different direction, to let go of that mind grasp that we all still have. It takes practice, right? That part of us, that three-year-old is still in us. It doesn't happen automatically. It's easy to believe, yes, I, I get it. We should be generous. I'm going to do that when I have a little more to give away. I'm going to save that for, you know, when things are a little safer, a little more comfortable. 
But as the rich man reminds us, to put off investments in the things we really want to live into, to put off investments into the things of the divine is foolishness. We don't know how much time we have to work with, right? What we do know is that we are a part of a network of mutuality. Our resource provision isn't on us alone. We don't have to fear. I just need a little more before I can share. No, our resource provision isn't on us alone. Every time we give something to someone who needs it more, we are paying into that interrelated network. And I believe personally, I have experienced the fruitfulness of that network, the generosity of that network far more than I have ever paid into it. I have experienced the blessing of unexpected provision from others through meals when someone's sick, through the gifts of people's presence, going to the hospital with me when I need somebody, through folks watching my kids, people moving our furniture, through abundant financial generosity brought unto us. I have received all of these things just as I've also given these things away. There is enough within the network to go around. Amen? There is enough within the network to go around. Sometimes we're giving. Sometimes we're receiving. But always we are held by a divine heart at the center of the universe who cares for all of us and wants us to find freedom as we participate in this alternative way of being this family, this community, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Jesus believed we worship a God not of scarcity, but of abundance. After telling this parable, Jesus reminded his followers how God provides the birds, all the birds with food. God provides all the flowers with beautiful adornment. God knows you need food. God knows you need clothing. But God will provide them for you, and God doesn't want you to be consumed with their pursuit out of fear. Instead, Jesus says, pursue God's kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. May we all hear that invitation and that assurance and receive it with freedom, with joy, with hope for a life of health meaning and connection to the divine and to one another. Amen.